In John's Gospel, Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. What does that mean? How does he prove it? Well, we're going to spend some time in that gospel over the next few weeks here on this podcast as I play you some of the sermons I've given at my church on the topic. So let's dive into John now and see what he has to say. Now, it's quite a common occurrence in the world today. Perhaps you've experienced this yourself. For people to accuse Christians of being judgmental. Quite a lot of the time without the Christian actually saying or doing anything. If you've been up to date on the news, you might have seen this. The American popular fast food company, Chick-fil-A, opened a store in Reading in the Oracle, only to have it shut down by the shopping centre after its probation has ended because it's judgmental. As far as I'm aware, all they've done is sell fried chicken to people. But because the company is run by Christians, well, that cannot do, and therefore it has to be shut down. How do you react to stories like that? How does it make you feel? Well, if you're worried, if you feel worried, if you feel like you're lacking confidence in talking about Jesus... Because of things like this, you're right in line with what we're going to be seeing this morning. We're carrying on our series now, which we've been doing in our evening gatherings. We're looking at the Gospel of John. And if you've been with us in the evenings, you'll know that we've just finished John 15, up to verse 18, obviously. And at this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has just been saying that he's going to be going away. He's going to be going away to prepare a place for his followers, but he's also going to be returning And this is part of his leaving speech, setting the expectations for his disciples who've been walking and talking with him. We're coming out of Jesus describing the love that his disciples should have for one another. Have a look at the verse just before where we are today. Chapter 15, verse 17. Jesus says to his disciples, this is my command, love each other. But now the brakes are on and the gears have been crunched because Jesus is now going to talk about hate. And here, Jesus' aim, and John's aim in writing it down, is to give believers confidence in the midst of hate. You can see that in our passage. Flick over the page to verse 1 of chapter 16. Jesus says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. He says the same thing, similar thing in verse 4. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Jesus' disciples are facing the reality that Jesus will soon be leaving them and the world is going to go after them. And John's first readers, the first people to read John's gospel, well, they felt the brunt of following Jesus too. So these words here are for them as well, to give them confidence. And these words are here for us as well, to give us confidence today. So how does Jesus do that? Let's have a look at the passage. The first way that Jesus gives his disciples confidence in the midst of hate is to say to them that the world hated Jesus first. You can see that in verses 18 to 25 of chapter 15. Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. As John's been working his way through his gospel, he's been defining that word there, the word world, in a very certain way. For John, the world doesn't mean the planet Earth, exactly. 
It's not, for God so loved this ball orbiting the sun. Instead, the world in John means humanity in rebellion against God. Humanity in rebellion against God. And knowing that helps us to get what Jesus is saying here. It's humanity in its rejection, in its rebellion against its creator, that will hate the disciples of Jesus. Now, as I'm saying that, as you're hearing that, you're probably thinking, that's not a nice thing, is it? We all long to be liked by people deep down. It's not pleasant when people hate us. But here, it is down to the Christian's connection to Jesus. The world hates you, says Jesus, but remember, it hated me first. It goes with the territory. Jesus explains the flip side of that in verse 19. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remembering the world for John is humanity in rebellion against God. Well, it helps us to grasp this. The world that rebels against God loves those who join it in its rebellion against God. But those who've been chosen, those who've been plucked out of the world, do not go along with its ways. When you become a Christian, there is a radical shift in the way that you see the world. All of a sudden, those things on the television, well, they just don't appeal anymore. Suddenly, the way you view political debates can change drastically. For those of us in this room who follow Jesus, I'm sure you can see that in yourself. I was like this, but now. See, to go along with the world is, to belong to the world is to abandon truth, to rebel against God, to ultimately go against everything that is good and to choose the path of wickedness. In fact, I think this passage is saying that if a Christian is loved by the world, there's probably something going wrong. If a Christian is loved by the world for their views, there's probably something that they're covering up or there's something that they're conveniently ignoring. Jesus hints at that in our next verse. He reminds his disciples of something he'd only said a couple of chapters before. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. Now, when it comes to issues that are culturally explosive, it is tempting to think that we might be able to explain them in a way that the world would accept. If only I was to explain the Bible's view on homosexuality. If only I had the opportunity to speak into what gender really is. If only I could convince society on the wrongs of abortion. There's an issue with each of those sentences. And that's the issue that we think we can do better than Jesus. And when you think about it, when you put it that way, it's pretty laughable, isn't it? Jesus was hated by the world, so his disciples will be also. It's not a flat-out rejection, though. If someone does obey Jesus' teaching, they will accept the teaching of the apostles also. Some people will listen. It's not going to be universally rejected. And the promise here from Jesus is that these words that the disciples will speak are going to have the same authority as his own. So the person who believes in Jesus will believe Peter. The person who believes in Jesus will believe Paul as well. But the big issue here in this passage is the rejection of Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, the world rejects the one who has sent him. As Jesus can say in verse 23, whoever hates Jesus hates the Father as well. 
So you see, as the world hates the disciples, they're showing their hatred for their boss. And as they hate the boss, as they hate Jesus, they show their hate for the Father as well. Jesus fully reveals the Father, and therefore, if you hate Jesus, you hate him too. And as a world rebels against its creator, against God, they show their hatred of him. The cry of the new atheists, getting quite old now actually, for example, sums this up. There is no God and I hate him. And that's sin. As we say to the children here at Christ Church, that's saying, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your ways. That's what Jesus is getting at in verses 22 and 24. On the surface, these verses might seem a bit confusing to understand, but in the context, there's a specific sin in view, and that's the sin of not knowing God, especially when he's revealed himself spectacularly and explicitly in Jesus. The rejection of God shown in Christ is turned into persecution and hatred. And that's been the same throughout the Bible history, actually. Jesus says that in verse 25. The record through the Bible shows that this is the case for every person who's followed God. The quote there in verse 25 is taken from two different Psalms. And it sums up the story for those throughout the Bible who followed God. For Moses, for example, who rescued the people from Egypt, only to have them turn around and want to stone him. To Elijah, as the children are learning about this morning, I'll let you ask them. Even through to King David, who wrote these Psalms and ultimately through to the Messiah, the Christ, who the Psalms point to, the King in their midst, Jesus. As I hinted earlier, these words are being spoken specifically to Jesus' disciples, but later on in the New Testament, we see that these things apply to all believers too. For example, Paul in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 can say, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the way it's always been. The original readers of John's Gospel will have known this well as they were oppressed by the Jewish powers of their time. But Jesus and John here want them and us to take confidence that this is what was expected. You see, this isn't a sign of failure. It's far from it. This is a sign that you're on the right side of history. So those who belong to Jesus will be hated by the world. And that's because the world hates Jesus and the world hates God. And when you look at it like that, it makes the gospel all the more amazing, doesn't it? There's a famous verse, I alluded to it earlier, found in John 3.16. It doesn't say, for God so hated the world, does it? No, it says, for God so loved the world. Even though the world hates God, God still shows his love for the world in sending his one and only son. Isn't that amazing? Well, you might be sitting there thinking, that sounds like a raw deal to me. Sounds like a raw deal for the disciples. Jesus is going to go away and the world's going to hate them. It doesn't sound particularly rosy. But verse 26 starts to turn the corner. So on to our second reason to be confident in the midst of hate. The Holy Spirit is given to testify. Good, you're flicking your pages over. Verses 26 to 27. Jesus has been punctuating what he's been saying throughout this explanation to the disciples by saying that someone is going to come and be with them. Here that person is called the advocate. Another word you might use is mediator, or you're more likely to use the word helper. And having someone at your side is a helpful thing, isn't it? 
whether it's someone coming to speak to the boss with you or someone coming with you to the hospital. Having someone with you gives you a boost in confidence, power in numbers. Well, in this case, in what Jesus is saying here, that person is the Holy Spirit. We learn a bit more about him here. First of all, Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to the disciples from the Father. Now, we've got to remember, this is before Pentecost. This is before the Holy Spirit comes, so the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. But Jesus is going to send him, verse 26, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. In that sentence alone, we get all three members of the Trinity, all working together. The Son sends the Spirit from the Father, all united in one job, but each with different roles. And here we see what the Holy Spirit is going to do. Firstly, he's referred to here as the Spirit of Truth. In a world that's in rebellion against God, truth is needed to cut through all the lies. To be on the side of truth is to be on the side of Jesus. To be on the right side of history on the last day is to be on the right side of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is fully on board with that. Secondly, we see that the Holy Spirit is a person. Even more than that, we see that he is a he in verse 26. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a he. He's a person. And finally, we see what he will do. He will testify. He will testify about Jesus. That's what the Spirit's primary job is, to point to Jesus. Well, so how's that a help to the disciples? Well, we see that in verse 27. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. The disciples here are to testify too. They're to speak of Jesus into this world in rebellion. They're to witness to people about the saving news of Jesus. But they're not going to do it on their own. God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, is going to be doing it alongside them. And that's still the same today. Christians are still to testify, to witness, to speak about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is still doing the same today, testifying, witnessing to the Lord Jesus. Christians are not on their own in doing that. Christian, you are not on your own. So even though it might feel that way in the office, or we might feel completely abandoned at the dinner table, we can take confidence that the Holy Spirit will testify alongside us. We'll see something more of that in a moment. But that's the second reason to have confidence in the midst of hate. The Holy Spirit is given to testify. The third reason, the third way Jesus gives his disciples confidence is to warn them about what is to come. Now on the 1st of October at 6am in the morning, a flood warning was issued for the town of Hunstanton in Norfolk. The warning to evacuate came soon after that, and the 4,000 residents of the town were braced to leave everything behind. Fortunately for them, the warning didn't come true and things were fine. But knowing that something is going to happen is generally better than being caught out by it. In fact, knowing that something is going to happen gives you confidence, doesn't it? There's a reason why the NHS gives expectant parents a course in labour preparation before the day it's needed. As we saw at the start, Jesus is concerned to make sure that the disciples don't fall away. In John, the idea of falling away is to be scandalised by what Jesus is saying. 
If someone was to fall away then, they'd do the complete opposite of what Jesus wants them to do, what he's just said in verse 27. They will not testify, they will not tell the world about him. Instead, everything that Jesus has said to them and will now say to them is there to give them confidence in the task they have before them. And Jesus continues here by forewarning them what's going to happen next. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. And that's exactly what does happen to the disciples. If you follow their story, a few pages on in the book of Acts, they are put out of the synagogue. A guy called Saul of Tarsus does hunt them down and tries to kill them. In fact, that story, it continues all the way through history. You get the stories of Romans putting Christians to death thinking that they're pleasing their gods. You get stories of Muslims putting Christians to death, thinking that they're pleasing Allah. Whether it's the second century or the 21st century, this is still continuing. In fact, if you want a history lesson, just drive down the road a few miles to the city of St. Albans, a place named after the first British Christian martyr. People thinking their right to persecute and even kill the followers of Jesus. And the reason why they do that, well, it's there in verse 3. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Jesus knows this personally too. In these two verses, he talks about time. That's actually the same way he's been talking about the time or the hour of his death. As he says these words, the clock is ticking in its final rotation. At the end of this very day, He's going to be tried and executed on a Roman cross. Executed by those who think they're doing a service to God. But as they do that, they're going to be showing they don't really know the Father or Jesus. They'll be showing they don't really know God. But he says these things now so that verse 4, when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. So Jesus gives confidence in the midst of hatred by warning about what is to come. As I said, this prediction of Jesus has been showing itself true for the past 2,000 years, and it's going to continue showing itself true far into the future. So it leaves us asking the question, are we prepared for hostility? It might appear, at least in our neck of the woods, that persecution is not really an issue. Yes, the government is cracking down on street preachers, Yes, public opinion is turning on Christian views. That's not really life and death, is it? But if we were to expand the range of our Google searches, we'd be shocked to find out that the rate of persecution in this world against Christians is the highest it has ever been. But rather than beginning to panic, we should be like those people in Hunstanton who hear the warning and therefore get ready. We can have confidence in what's going to happen and plan accordingly. And finally, the fourth reason to have confidence in the midst of hostility is that the Holy Spirit will work as the gospel goes out. As I said earlier, these words are being spoken specifically to Jesus' disciples. These words recorded here are placed in time and space. There's a very specific time being spoken of here. You can see that in verse 7. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away, says Jesus. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
You see, at this point in time, Jesus is physically with his disciples. The advocate, the other name for the Holy Spirit, well, he's not come yet. We know that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did come. So this is a very specific time frame that Jesus is speaking into. And it's a very specific time frame also because Jesus is with his disciples. But that's changing. Have a look at the end of verse 4. Jesus says to his disciples, I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. Up until this point, Jesus has been physically there at every moment. But now this is changing. Verse 5 onwards. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me where you're going. Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see, Jesus is going away. But rather than being happy about it, rather than excitingly wanting to know where he's going, the disciples are filled with grief. You can understand where they're coming from, can't you? Their friend is leaving them. He's just said the world's going to hate them. They still haven't got it that Jesus is saying to them to be confident. So once again, Jesus has to remind them that it is a good thing that he is going away. He says in verse 7, I've already read it, I'll read it again. Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We've seen a little bit of the benefits that the advocate, the Holy Spirit, is going to bring when he comes. But here we have a few more. The Holy Spirit will work as the gospel goes out. As these disciples, as they speak for Jesus, as they testify, the Holy Spirit is going to do his work. We've seen that the disciples testifying is connected to the Spirit's testifying. And we're going to see in John 17 in the evenings that Jesus prays for those whom the disciples will spread the message to. So what is it then that the Holy Spirit will do as the gospel is proclaimed? Well, we're given three specific things here. Have a look at verse 8. When he, not it, remember, comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. If you were to go into the streets of Hemel Hempstead and ask people about those three things, I reckon you'd hear something like this. Sin? Well, I'm not as bad as other people. Righteousness? Yeah, I'm a good person. Judgment? Well, God is love, right? Well, Jesus says here, the Holy Spirit's going to prove those answers wrong. Let's just think about what he says for a moment. About sin, because people do not believe in Jesus. You see, for people to grasp who Jesus is and what he came to do, they need to know their sin problem. The problem that the whole world suffers from. The problem that I, the problem that you suffer from. And the problem that Jesus came into the world to deal with, our separation from God. So the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, convinces people of their state and their need for Jesus and for life in his name. About righteousness, because Jesus is going to the Father where you'll see him no longer. See, righteousness is where we stand before God. It's in the word. We're either right in his sight or we're not. When Jesus was in this world, his presence, the things he did, were enough to show that to people as they realised their inadequacy before him. But now he's going to the Father and people will see him no longer. They need to be convinced of their lack of right standing before God. The spirit of truth will convict 
of this inconvenient truth of standing before God. And finally, about judgment, because the prince of the world now stands condemned. As the truth of the gospel goes out, and the defeat of the prince of this world, Satan, at the cross, goes out, the Holy Spirit will be showing the judgment is incoming. Just think of it this way. If the ruler of the world has already been defeated and judged by God, only makes sense for the world to be next, doesn't it? If you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, have any of those things struck you particularly? See, God promises that as his word is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit will be at work. So please do come speak to myself or to Sam at the end of this gathering if you want to talk some more, or come along to Christianity Explored starting in a couple of weeks. But as the message goes out, the Holy Spirit will be at work. Jesus has more to say, but my my temptation is that when I've got more to say, I just speed up. But Jesus is showing that he's got more wisdom than me here. That's a good thing. You see, there's more to be said, verse 12, but the disciples can't bear it now. On this side of the cross, they have reached their limit. In a few hours' time, Jesus is going to be arrested and nailed to a cross. But three days later, he's going to rise again. And a little while after that, the Holy Spirit will come. At that point, he's going to speak truth to these disciples, the same truth that Jesus has already been saying to them. And as he does that, he's going to be glorifying the Lord Jesus. And these men, these very men being spoken to specifically here, will go forward. They'll go confidently into the world to share the news of Jesus, into a world that is rebelling against its creator, sharing the good news that sin has been dealt with, that the true righteousness can be found, and that judgment can be avoided. As I said, their stories can be read in Acts, and those who followed them can be read all the way through history, right up to today. So are we confident of that? As we proclaim the message of Jesus to the world around us, to the world around us that is in rebellion against God, to the world around us that hates God, are we confident that the Holy Spirit will be at work? See, we can nod our heads, we can say yes, But the real test is whether we actually go out and do it. If we actually go out into the world and testify about Jesus. That's how we really show that we believe this. So are we confident? As I said at the start, Jesus' aim here for his disciples and John's aim for those reading this account is to give confidence in the midst of hatred. It might be tempting to worry about all of this, to be afraid of the next encounter you have, to be concerned about what might come around the corner and to be paralysed by it. Or it may be tempting to just take what Jesus has said here and put it aside into the mental recesses of our minds, to bury our head in the sand and act like nothing's happened. But if we understand what Jesus is saying here, we can walk boldly, we can walk confidently into a world knowing that people will hate us because they hated Jesus, but having confidence that we are not on our own and testifying to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus. Let's give thanks that these disciples did do that, and let's pray that we would follow suit and testify to Jesus in our world today. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words you have spoken to us today. 
Thank you for the confidence they instill in us to go forward and testify about you. We thank you that the disciples went out in confidence to tell the world about the Lord Jesus. Thank you that they understood the cost and they went into a world that hated them. Father, we pray that we would do similar. Help us to know that the world hated Jesus first. Help us to know the power of your spirit. Help us to have certainty knowing what is coming and help us to know that we are not on our own testifying about you. We pray this week that you would use us in whatever way you see fit to the glory of your name. Amen. I hope you found that helpful and edifying. If you have any feedback or questions, feel free to reach out to me via email. The details are in the show notes. But until next time, let's keep praising God this week. Thank you.